Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with Canadian tenor saxophonist and jazz veteran Corey Weeds. Over the course of our conversation, he spoke passionately about a life he has dedicated to jazz. For 14 years, he ran the very successful Cellar Jazz Club in Vancouver, and that filled the world with many tasty memories and gigs. These days, he is busy as ever as a recording artist and orchestrating a whole host of jazz magic. On the verge of his 10th studio album with the Jeff Hamilton Trio called Happy Madness, this is exactly what we delved into. It's all a part of the big picture. Dig this interview, my friends. First of all, thank you for taking some time to talk with me today. I appreciate it. Of course, I love talking, as you'll soon find out. <laughs> <laughs> right on. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to jump in here, and I want to get an idea of what has been going on with you lately. <laughs> well, I'm not sure you have enough time. Uh, well, there's lots going on lately. Um, I guess the, 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 the biggest thing is that I'm, I'm a full-time member of Coastal Jazz, and Coastal Jazz is most known for the production of the Vancouver International Jazz Festival, the TD uh, Vancouver International Jazz Festival every year. Um, I had been working part-time with them um, since about, I guess, around this time last year, um, and uh, doing a series of concerts for for several years. Uh, Coastal was kind of out of the year-round programming game. They were focused mostly on... Um, on the festival programming, uh, and um, a lot of you know, one thing led to another. I actually applied for the um, executive director position that came up at Coastal Jazz, which I'm thankful I didn't get. Um, and I think going into that whole process, I knew I wasn't going to get it, and they knew that I wasn't going to get it. But I think it was an interview process that was, um, you know, that had some sort of ulterior motives, if you will, just to find out if I would be a good fit, you know, for their organization and to get to know me a little better, although we've had a relationship, you know, it was I got to know the board and I got to know the the key players. And so anyways, what came from that was they um, hired me on a part-time basis to produce uh, a year-round concert series, which I was kind of already doing, but they took it and put it under the Coastal Jazz banner. Uh, and from there, it developed into a bit of a role um, that they sort of titled Education and Outreach was sort of a second part of the, the job. And we were lacking the third part of, of that job to sort of make it a full-time paid position at Coastal. Um, I was approached about five months ago by a local club, and I'll save you the long, sordid details, but um, they wanted me to take over the entertainment programming, and I just wasn't – it just wasn't something I wanted to jump back into. Um yeah. It's especially, you know, it was a really good opportunity if I was 25 and had no kids and no mortgage, but yeah. it's a lot, it was a lot of risk. And I was like, you know, it's just, it's a great opportunity, but it's just not the one that I want to jump into. And so what I said was, I need to introduce you to the folks at Coastal Jazz, who are a nonprofit society, and they need to hire me and pay me to basically run it because they don't have anybody in their fold that could do that. And it would be great for both parties in that, A, I would have a full-time job. Uh, B, on the coastal side, they would be really uh, invested in local programming and year-round programming in a way that they never have before. Uh, and so the long and short of it is that they jumped at the opportunity and we're opening a club starting October 8th, and it's going to kind of be a new hub for Vancouver jazz and blues music, which it hasn't had since 
the cellar closed, you know, about a year and a half ago. So, you know, that's what's been happening with me. And I continue to run the label and I continue to play and I continue to book tours. And I'm in the middle of right now of sort of uh, facilitating a, a Lewis Hayes and Cannibal Otterly Legacy Band tour. They're out here on the West Coast. So I'm kind of taking care of them for the next week or so. So things are busy as usual. So it's good. It's all good stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And it did say in your bio that in November 2016, your 10th album, Happy Madness, is yeah. going to be coming out. Is that still on track? <laughs> yeah, I forgot. I forgot about that. Yeah, that <laughs> is coming out. And that, uh, yeah, that's a big one for me. That was, um, I'm excited about that record. I'm, I'm really thrilled how it turned out. Um, you know, if you look through my discography, you can see, you know, the sort of angle that I've taken on a lot of my records. I have a lot of special guests, and I've been very fortunate to be presented with a lot of opportunities. I've created a lot of opportunities, I guess, for myself, too. But, you know, to have special guests from New York, whether it's featured with local musicians who I'm very proud of and, and very happy to have had the opportunity to record with, but... You know, other opportunities present themselves where I get to record with with the the cream of the crop, and and the Hamilton one was interesting because, you know, I I struck up a relationship with Jeff and the guys after presenting them in Vancouver, and they're wonderful. They're wonderful guys, especially Jeff. Jeff and I really hit it off. We have the same sense of humor, and we have a lot of fun. Um, but that trio is a very I don't know what the word is, but it's a very sacred thing, especially to Jeff, and. They just they have a thing, and to 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 approach them about recording and, and conceptualize a recording, adding a saxophone player was something that was a hard thing for me to approach. But Jeff was very open to it. And then it was, how are we going to? How am I going to? How am I going to go into this situation and feel like I'm not a? Well, I guess in this case, a fourth wheel, but. You know, how am, I, how am I going to feel a part of this trio instead of just, oh, this is Jeff's trio with some saxophone player from Canada, you know? And so I was I was quite worried about it. So I started talking with Jeff, and I started talking with Tamir about tunes and, and arrangements, and Tamir did four or five arrangements. I did one, uh, and Jeff did one, and then a couple other tunes where there's one Jeff original that's going to be on there called Max, and then there's a tune that Jeff and Tamir had played with the Clayton brothers called Blow Your Horn. And so that's sort of the material. So... You know, we had no, of course, we had no time to rehearse or anything with the band. I mean, he sent, Tamir and Jeff sent their charts up, and I, I worked uh, I worked a local rhythm section into the ground playing these tunes because, as you'll hear, you know, when you get the record, um, you know, it's intricate. It's It sounds really easy, and one one thing I found when I got these arrangements is I, I wanted to do an arranged record. I'd never done that before. I had done sort of the standard, hey, let's just work out an intro, maybe a, a shot here or there, and let's go record. That's what I did with Mayburn. That's what I did with Condition Blue. I really wanted to try my hand at a, at a, at a tightly arranged record where it was almost the focus was almost more on the tune than it was on the blowing. But what ended up happening was I kind of got more than I bargained for because Jeff and the trio make it sound so easy. you know. So I got these charts. And I was like, oh, my God, Like this stuff is really difficult. And so I worked this local rhythm section into the ground. I booked a bunch of gigs, and, and we played the stuff. And, and uh, I flew down to Los Angeles, and, and we met at the studio, and we re rehearsed for the first day for about seven hours. And I thought I was going to pass out. I felt like I just played football for four hours. I, I, it was just <laughs> exhausting, but it was great. And just watching those guys in the studio and listening to them and, and just – I was amazed at how nothing 
gets past them. I mean, every note, every nuance, like there was nothing that they would let go. And I'm not used to that. And it's not, that's not to say anything disparaging about any of the other people I've played with. It's just a different vibe, you know? Um, and then we went in to the studio over the next two days. And to those guys' credit, they made me feel like I had been playing in the band forever. And uh, I felt, I mean, I really did feel like I was a part of the Jeff Hamilton trio. And they were awesome to work with, and I think the results kind of show exactly that. I mean, it's a it's a fun record. The arrangements are great, and we just we had a really good time. And I I genuinely thought that, or I thought that they genuinely had a good time too. And um, it was a, just a really pleasurable experience. It was an experience that I thought I was going to be quite nervous about, but man, when we rehearsed and I just got there and I was super comfortable and I just was like, oh. Okay, I'm just going to sit here and have a good time. Look at that. I'm playing with the Jeff Hamilton trio, you know. Relish it and go have a good time. So, yeah. you know. Cool. Yeah, so it was really, really fun. You know, the interesting thing about I know that there's a lot of collaborations across the board in different genres of music, but there seems yep. to be a special level of camaraderie that exists within jazz. Is that just a perception, or do you think that's a reality? The music itself is 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 the type of music it is kind of breeds that attitude for sure, but it doesn't always work. I mean, you know, I've been in and I, I can't think of anything off the top of my head, but you know, I've played with people or been in groups or been added to groups where it hasn't worked. I mean, I think it's more about that music breeds that kind of of that the the music itself the nature of the music breeds camaraderie it it, it breeds that kind of stuff having said that it's also about other elements it's about personality um you know i have played with some people that are really fantastic musicians but aren't that nice of people and right. that's not as good for me it ruins the musical vibe as a listener and as a collaborator I've met musicians that aren't as good as maybe some of the other people that I have an opportunity to play with, but the hang is so great yeah. and and it feels so good and so it's about more than it's about more than just how you play. It's about all of those elements. Like playing music is fun and I do it for a living and that's how I feed my family for the most part. But it's it's music is still fun. I mean it's it's a job, but it it's still supposed to be fun and you know, I take particular interest in 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 making sure that the making sure that the 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 audience is having fun and the audience is enjoying it, and so all those things are important. So I think the music breeds that. But you know, just because you're playing jazz doesn't mean the camaraderie is going to be great and everything's going to be wonderful. I think you have to work hard you know, at that kind of stuff. But I kind of knew after I, like, I didn't just ask Jeff Hamilton one day, hey, I'd like to record with your trio. I mean, it came after presenting him here in Vancouver for for uh, for four gigs, like two separate times, and then talking to him when he was here another time with a different group, talking to Tamir, and kind of getting to know them a little bit on a personal level and feeling like, you know what, I think this would be a really good experience. And if it wasn't, if I wasn't feeling that, I wouldn't have done it. I wouldn't have done it just so I could record with Jeff Hamilton. It has to be, you know, it has to be a, 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 a cool thing. And I remember, you know, to use, and I'm probably talking way too long, but, no, you, you know, don't. my record with Harold Mayburn, I mean, I remember Harold came to Vancouver with Eric Alexander. Uh, no, excuse me, the first time he came with was, was Mike DeRubo. 
and this was about seven years ago, and I was just like, wow, I am not, and the hang was great, but I'm like, I'm just not, I don't feel ready to, to do it you know, with Harold, and it was never a goal of mine necessarily to record with Harold Mayburn. I mean, I I would love, I would have loved it, but I was just like, wow, his music is so powerful, and I don't really know how I fit into that. Then, over the years, I got to know him, bringing him back to Vancouver. I sat in a couple times with him, and then I started to feel really great about everything, and Harold is one of the most wonderful people I've ever met. So, for our 13th anniversary at The Cellar, that's who I got. And we, of course, did this tour and, and made this record. And, and it, it ha- has to happen very organically for me in order to do a record. I'm not just going to call up somebody one day and say, hey, I think it'd be great to have your name on my record. Let's do it. It has to be a, a personal fit. It has to be, a, it has to be a, a, a musical fit. And it has to be a personal fit. And it has to be something that I think has, is going to work. And I, you know, I don't th- my track record in terms of choosing those things and using that judgment has been almost perfect. I don't think I've done anything that's been like, you know what, that wasn't a good choice. So, you know, that's kind of the way I think about those things. Yeah, absolutely. So, let me let me ask you this real quick. I'm going to sure. come back to the beginning of your life here and I want you to talk to me about growing up in Canada. What kind of jazz you saw? How did you get to that jazz brain part of you where you were like this is what I want to do? Well, so I grew up in a musical household. I mean, I think my um, um, I grew up in a musical household. My dad was a guitar player, so there was always music and jazz around my house. He's not a professional guitar player. He was a good guitar player, but that wasn't his profession. So it was always around my house. I took piano lessons. Never liked jazz. I was a typical teenager. I wanted to do everything, you know, that my dad, you know, I I, I didn't do anything my dad wanted just because I was a, you know, a teenager being a pain in the ass. Um, but I had a very cool, I have a very cool dad. I have very cool parents and especially my dad. Uh, we've always had this, this bond. Um, and he just kept pushing me. He kept pushing me. And one day it finally clicked and I can remember, you know, I, I came at jazz from a different way. Like I listened to David Sanborn, who was like kind of my first hero. And that's kind of how I came into it. But I remember there was a lot of guitar going around in my house. And, um, because, you know, naturally my dad being a guitar player, and I remember hearing Wes Montgomery play a tune called Sundown, and I think I was probably in grade 11. And that's kind of what did it for me. I was like, oh, I really like this. And from there, it just sort of, you know, from there, it, it sort of went. Now, I went to a high school that was very sports specific. I think the year I graduated or was supposed to graduate from the school that I did. I think like five or seven guys got drafted to major sports teams. I mean, none of them went on to to do anything, but it was a very sports specific school. So, and oddly enough, my baseball coach was a, a band teacher at a Vancouver school. So I switched my graduating year in grade twelve and went to this 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 Vancouver school, and that was really pivotal for me because they had two band teachers there. One was a super straight ahead saxophone guy. Another one was kind of a pop. You know, kind of liking the 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 Sanborn, Rippingtons, even Kenny G, for that matter. But they weren't my dad, so I had this other thing that I was like, well, they're telling me it's cool, so it's okay. I can't have my dad telling me it's cool. So that was really pivotal for me. And then there was a moment in my graduating year where it was like, what am I going to do? Am I going to go to school, or what? You know, am I going to go to to music school? And so it was either going to be business school or music school. And my dad said to me, I will pay for your first year if you go to music school. But if you go to business school, you're on your own, which is really 
it's crazy when you think about it. It's the complete opposite of what you would think. Yeah. So I went to music school, and, you know, I think what happened was my dad sort of thought that I was going to go to school and get a degree and then become a, a music teacher because I don't know how it is where you are, but in, in Canada, I mean, the teachers have gone through a lot of trouble with the government, but it's a very well-paid job up here, and it's very secure. But I just, I wasn't a teacher, and so I quit. I went to college for three years. I went to North Texas for a year. It was going to get my master's, and everything was going to be wonderful, but I just wanted to play, and I had an entrepreneurial spirit. So I came home from Texas. I joined a sort of a jam kind of pop band, and started getting into people like Stevie Wonder and James Brown and, and Maceo Parker and all of that kind of stuff. And, and, um, you know, was touring kind of all over North America doing that. I got into doing jazz radio, um, when I was at North Texas. So I was doing that and I was meeting people and, you know, just kind of all this stuff I was doing was just all kind of interrelated. And I started my own band and it was kind of like a, a funky instrumental kind of funky band, and everything just kind of kept, you know, everything just kind of kept going. And eventually I was presented with an opportunity to buy a club. And um, my mom had to convince my dad that, you know, giving me, you know, co-signing for $100,000 was a good idea. And um, I opened the club in 2000. And um, I honestly thought at that point that my my musical career would sort of end. I was kind of thinking that I was going to just become a club owner and that would be the end of it. And I'd sit in a few times and, you know, hey, it's, it's been fun. But the total opposite happened. About four years into the club, I mean, we almost went into business, oh God, 30, 35 times probably. Uh, we got some investors, we got on some stable ground. And what happened was the exact opposite. My career actually went the complete opposite direction and my musical career kind of took off. And, um, you know, without going into details, you know, the club lasted 14 years. I got married, had two kids, and it was time for me to get out of the, the club business. Um, but that's kind of the trajectory of my, you know, my sort of childhood is just, and I'm, I, I don't know where or how or why. I just have a passion for this music that, that won't go away. Yeah. Um, and I feel like it's my job and it's my calling to keep doing what I'm doing because, uh, you know, I mean, of course there are other people out there doing it. I don't mean to suggest that, but I'm kind of doing it on a lot of levels and it's tiring sometimes. Um, but I just, the passion just hasn't died for the music. So it's my whole life, you know, and sometimes I have to, I have to try to separate it. Like I have a beautiful wife and I have two wonderful children and I love them dearly and we do lots of amazing things together but like my whole life I'm thinking about jazz music and records and what can I do next and what gig can I do and what recording can I it's just it's kind of overtakes my whole life so I'm trying to work on finding balance between the things I need to find balance in you know yeah I hear you I totally hear you but yeah I know about that jazz bug once it hits you it's pretty intense let me ask you this 14 years you run a club and I've been around the block enough to know that just being in the inside of a club, there's enough stories that could fill the annals of every encyclopedia on a shelf. <laughs> Tell me, what, what over all these years, was there some really good story, some magnanimous moment, something that just was, I don't know, meaning of life, something big that happened, a story in your club? 
Well, I mean, you know, there's, yeah, I mean, in 14 years, there's lots of stories. I have, um, you know, I mean, sure, there's tons. I mean, I can pick, you know, one thing I, one thing that, that, that used to come up a lot, um, people would email me and say that, um, you know, I brought my date there. We had our first date at the cellar, and she didn't really know much about jazz, and I love jazz, and I took her to your club, and we fell in love with your club, and we had our first date, and we got married. That's happened like three or four times where people had their first dates and and have ended up being, um, you know, being you know, being life partners because of their first date at the cellar. That's kind of cool. That's not yeah. that sexy of a story, but, you know, that happened a lot. One thing I know... You know, I'm I'm I, I I'm not very good at at uh, saying good things about myself. I'm my my humor comes from my dad, and it's much more self-deprecating, and you know, it's much easier to for me to be humorous about that kind of stuff than pumping myself up. But one thing that has always made me feel really good is since I closed the club, how many people have come up to me and said like the and talked about the mark I left on the Vancouver jazz scene and the Canadian jazz scene and the international jazz scene and you know um there's always stories that come up about how some guy through something you know through people like yourself who play my records and you know say oh we've heard this Corey Weeds guy in Vancouver and he's a great saxophone player and he's got a club and I never think like that. I just think we live in this kind of small little town and I mean it's a big city, but you know a, a city in Canada and nobody really knows what's going on up here and and uh, the mark that people say I've left is really a, 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 a it's really flattering to me. Um I can tell you one really funny story because it's at the top of my head right now because there's a new film coming out uh, on Frank Morgan. It's touring the film festivals. Frank Morgan was a great alto saxophonist and he he was sort of the supposed to be the heir to to Charlie Parker, but you know, like many of those guys of that generation they ran into um they ran into drug problems and so he was incarcerated and and never quite, you know, lived up to that crazy crazy expectation that people put on him. So Anyways, Frank Morgan came to the cellar for a three-night run. I can't remember when it was. It was probably 2004. So I was pretty young, and I was 30, and Frank was kind of a hero of mine. And I wasn't very established either as a club owner or as a saxophonist, for that matter. So I was pretty green. And so I picked him up in Seattle, and the first thing he asked me was, can you get me some marijuana? I said, look, let's just get across the border into Canada, and then I can get you whatever you want. But I, I, we got to get to Canada first. Yeah. So I got him in there, and um, we we got him we got him into we got him into the country, and and uh, I got him what he needed, and we had three nights of of amazing music. And Frank was a little tough to deal with, um, but it was cool. The music was good, and on Monday I picked him up at the hotel to take him back to Vancouver. Uh, excuse me, back to Seattle. So we have to cross the border. So I just said, Hey Frank, just to make sure, like, did you get rid of whatever it was that you had? And so he pulls out this bag of of marijuana and there's a little bit left. I'm like, look, man, like you can't, like you got to get rid of that. He's like, well, how about I just smoke it? And you know, I'm 30 years old. I've got my hero in my car. I, I didn't have the guts to say, look, like, no, man, that's not cool. So I'm like, yeah, whatever, just get rid of it. So he does it. So now there's me, this young, you know, and I hate to say it like this, but this is how the people at the border are going to view it. There's this young white guy with an older black man in his car. 
who's now, his eyes are totally bloodshot. I'm like, oh, my God. So I said, Frank, can you get rid of this stuff? So he opens the car window and holds the bag out. And all of the remaining stuff blows back into the car. I'm like, oh, my God. So now, and he's high. So I'm I'm at the side of the road, like, brushing this stuff out from my car. I mean, what I should have done is said, look, we got to go get this car detailed and then I'll take you to get your flight. But I was too young and too stupid to, yeah, I didn't, you know, I'm like, ah, I don't want to cause a problem. Yeah. <laughs> I'd rather just go to jail. Yeah. So we go through the border, and sure enough, once again, 75-year-old black man with bloodshot eyes and this young white dude in a baseball cap driving down, you know, to Seattle. It's like, oh, my God, and his eyes are bloodshot, and he looks over, and the border guard asks us some questions. like, it's beautiful to be alive, isn't it? And I'm like, this is it. Like, I'm going to jail. Like, it's this is it's over. And the guy, you know, he looked at us and said, see you later. Go ahead. And and that was the end of it. But, you know, to think about, like, all these, there's a guy that's trying to write a book on the seller. Like, you know, all of these stories coming up about crazy border crossings and just dealing with these guys. And, and um, you know, uh, there's lots of funny anecdotes. But for the most part... Um, you know, everybody that came to the club kind of recognized that it was a little different. Like it was a musician run club. And so uh, they were always put at ease, I think pretty much immediately, um, which made things very easy because I kind of know how to deal with musicians. And I certainly have made my fair share of mistakes in that regard, but you know, I am a musician, so I get it. So I can navigate my way around a lot of the issues that come up that other club owners would have trouble with. Um, you know, there were many musical life-changing moments. I mean, you know, I've been with Lou Hayes up here. I've been saying that, um, you know, the four-night, my 40th birthday party was the, and this was about two months before the club closed, having Lou Hayes and the Cannonball Band play four nights and making a record at the club was something I'll never forget. Um, Having George Coleman there was huge for me. Twice we had him. And just being able to call him my friend, and we still chat on the phone. Um, All the times hanging out with Harold Mayburn at the club and just the stories, Lou Donaldson. And then, you know, what what gets lost a lot is that we're really lucky in Vancouver because the local music scene is so rich. And some of the best nights at the club were with a local band just up there playing their butts off and the crowd packed club everybody's happy and smiling and it's you know it's a quintet of local musicians just ripping it up i mean i took a lot of pride in that you know and a lot gets made about all the international people that we brought but man it was real without the local scene there's just there's nothing there you know so um yeah i i'm sure there are better stories about life-changing moments but you know the stuff i've told you're just kind of stuff that's at the top of my head you know no, that's beautiful, and that's that's a great visual being in the car. I can totally see w- what you were saying. I, I it painted a great visual. Um, yeah, you know, I mean, it's like my hero. Like, I don't want to, and and you know, yeah. that still happens today because you know we're all human. We all make mistakes, but you know, you have to stand up and challenge somebody when you believe in something. And say, actually, that's not right. Like, yeah, you know. But now I'm a lot better at it because I'm, you know, I'm not a I'm not a 26 year old anymore. Like, I'm a fully grown adult with a family who. You know, is a relatively intelligent person who, you know, has some experience. So, but it's it's been hard for me to stra to to stra- to. I always pick because I always hang out with people that are older than me, and all my musical heroes, of course, are older than me. It's I always feel like I'm a young guy. 
Yeah. You know, and there's just some things that aren't okay. <laughs> right, right. You can't do that. Like, you just can't do that, you know. But, uh, you know, lesson learned and, 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 and nothing happens, so it's all good. Well, you know, no matter how big you get, you're a human. And everybody can respect that that has smarts. And, uh, yeah, there's something to be said about wisdom. Once you get to a point where you do, you grow up and you have a family, you have kids, you have things, it changes. It's just all of that that past, that laissez-faire kind of thing tends to kind of take a back seat, you know. So um, yeah. I can I can dig it. One thing I did want to bring up that, that sure. after all of these years at the cellar, the Mutual Musicians Foundation is here in Kansas City. And I remember I went in there to interview the executive director. When I came in, they said they just had a paranormal crew that left. They got such a strong reading because that place had everybody under the sun that came through. I mean, from Charlie Parker to Art Blakey, you name it, yeah. they've been through that door. So this is my question to you. As, as you were getting towards the end of running the club, did you have kind of a palatable vibe of, like, good feelings because of all the souls that floated through that doorway? Yeah, I think so. I, yeah, I do. I I, I, I was able to um, – you know what was what was kind of neat for me was um and this this was not by design it was more by fluke i was um you know we're in the music business and and there's a lot of uh, a lot of uh, perils that come with that like drinking and and all of that kind of stuff and when you own your own bars you know those things kind of you know go hand in hand so every year a couple times a year i just you know i'm just going to stop i'm just going to stop for a little while and just not have anything to drink i don't have a problem but i just want to stop just because it's for me it's a good reminder to kind of clean out and it's a good reminder to remind yourself that you can stop so my my point in telling you this is that about a month before the club closed i was going through this health kick so i wasn't drinking and i was not going to start on my last night because for a couple reasons one I I just hadn't been drinking and didn't feel like drinking. But two, I really wanted to make sure that I could soak up what was happening. Yeah. In really in in a really natural way, rather than a than a substance induced. You know, yeah, man, everything's great. You know, I really wanted to suck it up, uh, suck take it in and suck it up and just you know. And so that's what I did. And I do. I was really able for one of the very few times in my life be able to slow the pace down and just go. Wow. Like do you realize what happened in this club like over 14 years and the things that you did that not very many other 85 seat club owners, you know, on the West Coast could do. Yeah. And so yeah, and that feeling carried uh, the whole thing about I mean it was very scary for me to close the club. It was never it was never oh, my God, did I do the right thing? I knew it was the right thing from the second I made the decision, and I didn't question it. Not one time. I can honestly say I never questioned it one time. It was right. It's still right. I don't miss it. Um, But it was scary. Like, what am I going to do? Like, what am I going to do? And it was like, look, you took care of the music, and the music is going to take care of you because it has to. And I, I felt like I have so much goodwill built up that something has to happen. And there were scary moments. There have been many scary moments in the last year and a half. And my job with Coastal Jazz is not a secure job by any stretch. But I feel like the year and a half, I really was taking care. I really was taking care of the music. I got a ton of opportunities. I gigging a ton. And my family was no worse off, you know, in the year and a half I was closed and, and uh, you know, to now. So... 
you know, I got so many good vibes from 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 the people that came through those doors, and and I think about those times really fondly, and the friendships that I made, and 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 some of the fights I had, and some of the stuff that went wrong, and some of the things I could have done better. But now, being away from it, I can look at it and laugh and just say, yeah, like you know, it's it's it was a crazy 14 year run. It was crazy, and it was never boring, and there was always something going on. And uh, you know that's what makes it such a, and that's what makes it so great. So, as a former club owner, seeing a lot of live jazz, is if you could go back in time and see a act in a location, where would you go in history and see? Oh man, well, I mean, you know, one of my favorite records is um, Art Blakey, and I got to make sure it's right because they have similar titles. But the Art Blakey record, um, live at the Jazz Corner of the World, with Hank Mobley and Lee Morgan and uh, Bobby Timmons, and uh, and and it was uh, that was at Birdland. Now I'd never been to that incarnation of Birdland, so I don't even know what the inside of the club would be like. But if I could be there for a, any gig, that's where I'd be, because yeah. that music gives me. I mean, Hank Mobley is my favorite saxophonist without question, and that record just excites the hell out of me every time i listen to it it's almost like it's brand new so that would be that would be where i want to be I, I think there are more seminal recordings like train at the vanguard or you know bill evans at the vanguard or i mean that you know charlie parker anywhere you know monk at the five spot but i mean for me personally what excites me would have been to have seen that band at birdland you know, playing that music, just cooling and chicken and dumplings and all the stuff from that record just like just puts this huge smile on my face. So that's an easy question for me to answer. Yeah, absolutely. So you've obviously had a lot of teachers in your life, a lot of inspiration. Mm -hmm. Who would you say has taught you the most? Well, my dad. Um, you know, my dad, I think indirectly, um, you know, uh, my dad's taught me a, a lot about the music. I mean, it was him that got me into this whole mess. <laughs> um, you know, as far as musical teachers, wow. Um, you know, there's somebody that you may not be familiar with um, by the name of George Robert. He's a Swiss alto saxophonist who was like my first kind of hero, my first international hero. He lives in Switzerland now. He became a huge friend of the family um, you know, he was a huge influence on me now. Um, and I learn a lot from my peers. One of my best friends is a wonderful tenor saxophonist, and you probably have his record if you have my stuff. Uh, his name is Steve Caldestad. Yeah. And that's, yeah. So he's a dear friend. He's a, a really wonderful saxophonist. Um, and just a really good person. And I, I can honestly say I've learned a lot from him. Um, I've been working a lot with Vincent Herring and, um, you know, Vincent is another mentor of mine, um, somebody that I've looked up to for a long time and, and we have become friends and Vincent is a very even keeled, very, um, experienced and, and just very even keeled kind of guy. And I'm a very fiery, passionate reactionary defensive you know i'm all those things and so getting to know him a lot over the last several years um uh, has uh, has been really good for me and then i think the last one is somebody that passed away and you probably have this record as well the jill townsend big band record that you should have just gotten yeah. um 
the music of Ross Taggart. Ross was a tenor saxophonist and uh, a pianist, and uh, you know he was the first guy I told that I bought the club 15 years ago. Um, he was my hero, and he was only five years older than me. But when I was young, five years a big difference. Now it wouldn't be that big of a difference. I mean, if he was alive, he would be 47, and I'm 40 you know, almost 42. But back then, you know, in high school, and he's five years older, that's a big gap. And I, and Ross always treated me, I had always had the, I told Ross I was going to produce his first record. I told Ross I was going to open a jazz club. And he never went, yeah, yeah, whatever, kid, you don't know what you're talking about. He, he was he was always encouraging. And, um, you know, when he passed away, it left such a huge hole that, will never be full, uh, never be filled ever again. Um, that recording, I think, has done a, a really good job. It's sort of not filling the hole, but kind of, I don't know, it was just a nice project, and it was something that I was very involved in. I mean, it was my idea, and I raised all the money, and, and but it involved a lot of the people that were close to him. And so Ross was a big teacher and, and, and mentor for me as well. So it's kind of hard to pick one over the other because there's so many phases in a musician's and a club owner's life. I've, I've been very blessed to be surrounded by a lot of people that care about me, you know, both personally and musically. Um, and uh, I, I feel very blessed to have so many great people in my life that, that have guided me and, kept me on track and not that I would have fallen off track but it's always good to have people that keep you humbled and 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 keep you you know keep you on the right path and I certainly have had a lot of those right on let me ask you this what's the greatest thing about waking up every day for you well the greatest thing right now for me waking up uh, for me every day is when my daughter runs in and gives me that big smile she's a real daddy's girl um so I look forward to that every morning she runs to my side of the bed which is very cute and you know, so my family, I mean, seeing my kids are, uh, and my wife and my kids are fantastic. We have a wonderful, you know, I have a wonderful relationship with my wife and my kids are fantastic and they're good kids. So that is, is, you know, that is first and foremost. But, you know, and then the things that go along with that, like all the natural things, like I'm healthy and I've been lucky, you know, but I get to make my life in jazz music. I don't, and, and I'm not disparaging people that do have to do day gigs, um, because everybody does what they need to do to be happy, and that's fine. But I don't have to teach. I don't have to, you know, I don't have to be a real estate agent and have music on the side. I wake up, and my whole life, like, this is part of my gig today, talking to you. And then I'm going to get off the phone, and I've got to run up to my son's elementary school because I'm setting up for a Lou Hayes gig that they're doing. And then I have to send a contract to Jeff Hamilton, who's coming here in November. Like, my whole life is jazz. I wake up. And I think about jazz, my job, and um, it gets hard sometimes. And you know, I mentioned to you, Steve Caldestad, one of the one of the um, best pieces of advice I think I got in my adult life, or at least recently, came from him. It was a couple years ago, or maybe a year ago. I was, you know, I'm kind of prone to. I'm kind of prone to ups and downs more than a lot of people. You know, I'm a fairly anxious person, so you know, I go up and down like a yo-yo, and sometimes it's for no reason. I just I'm feeling down. And so I was having a down day and Steve said, Oh, what are you doing today? I'm like, Oh man, I got to go to the airport and pick up, you know, I can't remember who it was, you know, somebody like George Coleman or somebody like that, you know, and then I got to take him to his hotel. We're going to go for lunch. And then I got to run home and I got to listen to the tracks from, from this latest record and pick the takes. And, you know, I'm going through everything I got to do. And Steve's like, wow, 
you need to remember that you have a very cool job. And I was like, it, it was one of those things that somebody said that was like punched me in the face and was like, oh, yeah, like, wow, what a great way to spend a day and get paid for it. Yeah. So now when I go through all those times, I'm feeling like I'm kind of beaten down. And it doesn't mean that I can't be stressed out or it doesn't mean that I can't be anxious or feel down. I mean, everybody has that. It doesn't matter what the job. I mean, you know, I laugh. You hear about these peop- these guys uh, in, in, in hockey and NHL that are, are, I mean, there's been a rash of suicides, you know, because of mental illness. And they're making millions of dollars, you know. We think, oh, if we just had that, you know, we'd have it made. And, like, everybody... Everybody deals with life stuff, you know, whether you're rich or poor or famous or not famous. And so I just have to really remind myself sometimes that, yeah, man, like you've got a cool job. Like your gig today is really cool. Like it's it's going to be fun. Absolutely. So, you know, so that's uh, that's that's the advice that 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 that's really stuck with me. And when I wake up in the morning, that's kind of what I'm grateful for. I get to do some pretty pretty cool things. Yeah, absolutely. So up to this point in your life, at 42, you've done a lot of things that would add a very emboldened jazz legacy for you. So this is my question, my final question, <laughs> and this is by no means a swan song, but it's more of what are you happy that you've done to the world of jazz that you've left, and what do you want to ultimately, in say another 40 years, leave as your legacy, the Corey Weeds legacy to jazz? Well, I think, you know, a lot, I and mean, that's a question that sort of comes up a lot, like what's next or or what, you know, and I don't have, like, you know, when we, I remember when the club was still open, like, okay, let's sit down and work on a five-year plan. Like, what do you want, where do you want to be in five years? I'm like, I, I don't know. I want to be doing the same thing I'm doing. Like, I don't need to, I don't know. I don't need a five-year plan. I don't need things to be better, bigger and better. I mean, maybe I'd like to make more money and I don't know, maybe I'd like to have 120 seats. You know, but like I want to just keep doing what I'm doing and supporting my family and being involved in this music and um, keep looking at op- keep creating opportunities for myself and then strategically deciding which ones to take and not take, creating opportunities for other musicians um, and just keep doing what I'm doing. And if I do that until I'm I'm 80 or 70 and I'm healthy and that's what I want to do as far as my legacy or maybe what I've left. I mean, I just want to be a guy. I just want to be a guy that, that I I want people to say he did a lot for the music, you know, Um, he did a lot for the music in Vancouver and, and his passion never died. And he just, you know, he served the music. He did a lot for the music. I don't, you know, if, if, if I die and somebody decides to write a book about me, then great. I mean, I'm not going to, I'll take compliments, but nobody owes me anything and I don't owe anybody anything. So, you know, um, I did a lot of good work for people and people did a lot of good work for me. And at the end of the day, I think it's all come out in the wash. So I want people to just say that I was honest and I was passionate and, and, and I was transparent for the most part. And you know, that I was a good guy and that I served the music. That's, that's all I'm trying to do. Right on. Right on. Well, I could feel it for sure, and I feel it to the music. So, uh, and hey, thank you for opening up with me today and giving me some of your time. I appreciate it, man. 
No problem. Great interview. I, I like the questions, and anytime, you know, just let me know. I'm not, as you can probably tell, I'm happy to talk about it. Thanks for listening and tuning in to yet another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players in the United States, Canada, and spots all over the world giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to the very cool Corey for his music and being a force in the world of music. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store or visit theneonjazz.blogspot.com for all things Neon Jazz. Until next time, enjoy the music, my friends. Neon Jazz.